Addressing grief in the classroom can be challenging, but educators play a special role in helping students move through difficult life events. I'm Brad from Heinemann, and today on the podcast, we're joined by Brittany R. Collins and Marley Bunch. Brittany is the author of Learning from Loss, a trauma-informed approach to supporting grieving students. Her work centers around acknowledging the many ways grief may show up for students and identifying a holistic path forward. Marley Bunch is the Senior Director of Diversity and Culture for Comprehensive Mental Health and a Contracted Director of Education and Diversity for Race Project KC. She is a close colleague of Brittany and is currently working with her to develop a DEI companion resource for learning from loss. Together, Brittany and Marley discuss what a grief-responsive approach looks like and how we can shift our perspectives to embrace grief when it shows up. So Marley, when I start to engage in a conversation around grief and loss and teaching, I always appreciate, and I know that this is something that you also value in your own practice, the opportunity to take a moment to pause and think intentionally about language. And that's something that you and I talk about in our teaching, both individually and together, is how much language is a tool both to harm and to heal, and language is really the root of teaching and connection and all of the other kind of facets of the conversation that we're about to have. So I would love if we could take just a moment to think about the language that we use around grief and loss, and this is something that I engage with in the book, and then also would love to discuss you know, how we can think together about the kind of dominant narratives that surround grief, loss, trauma in society and in education, and what we can do as practitioners to shift language to be more inclusive when we consider loss experiences. So I think for listeners, it might be helpful to have a little bit of context about grief responsive teaching. That's a term that I introduce in the book in Learning from Loss. I use grief responsive teaching as a term to describe a pedagogical and an interpersonal approach to teaching and learning that integrates science and stories of grief into actionable classroom practices that support both students and teachers' well-being in times of loss. So I never want to lose sight of that both and, of thinking about both students and teachers' well-being. I think it's really important in this conversation to think about how both adults and young people are impacted by grief, by loss, by trauma, have emotional and intellectual responses to those experiences and are both subjects in this conversation. I've often received questions about how this term fits into other discourses like trauma-informed education, like social-emotional learning. I definitely view it as being connected to all of those things. The reason that I kind of decided to use this term in the book is to both center grief and loss, which is what we're here to talk about, but also to think about that word responsive. And so We're advocating for teachers to not only be sensitive to loss experiences and aware of loss experiences and the way that they impact their lives and students' lives, but also respond and take action to that knowledge in a way that feels more empowered. And so that's kind of the thinking behind my term of grief-responsive teaching. But Marley, I would love to bring you into this conversation and think together about 
how does language impact perceptions of loss, of trauma? You and I have also talked about the intersections of DEI and ABAR work and grief responsive teaching. And I think language certainly ties into that. Yeah, I think we have talked a lot about this and the the idea that we know words matter. We also know that words have been used to marginalize certain groups when we're talking about ABAR and DEI work. And so how we can shift our language as educators and um, just community members to make sure that we are inclusive when we talk about grief responsive teaching and when we talk about grief work. And you said something super important. I think we can use language to make sure that we are using it to serve as a counter narrative to the master narrative. And I definitely think when we talk about grief work, DEI, classroom, everything, we know that there historically and currently is a master narrative that I think using that language can help to deconstruct. So that's super important. Absolutely. And that's making me think too about an asset-based lens and a deficit-based lens. And so you and I in our teaching have talked about how there is often a societal kind of deficit-based lens around experiences of grief and loss and trauma, especially if we start to think about those words in themselves, expanding beyond the specific like physical death or loss of a person to encompass other types of losses, which is something that we can go into and talk more about. But there's sometimes this deficit-based thinking and then language around and, and silencing of experiences of grief, loss, and trauma. And especially in Western society, like we are often socialized into that silence as we get older, especially about our own experiences. And then also that leads us to maybe feeling uncomfortable about knowing how best to respond to and support those experiences in other people's lives. One of the areas in which I think about the deficit-based lens is especially in regards to student behavior. So there's a discourse in education right now about shifting from the term behavioral challenges to behavioral changes. And I kind of dance between both of those terms in the book because I also argue that a lot of the brain-based changes that we all experience in response to loss, they can impact our behavior in ways that are challenging for both the person experiencing the change and the person witnessing the change. And so that's not meant to stigmatize um, the person who's experiencing that change in any way, but thinking mindfully about an adaptation-focused lens, and this is going back to that asset idea, and Marley, you and I have talked about this, any kind of behavioral change that happens in response to loss, and that spectrum is very wide from apathy to perfectionism, from connection seeking to avoidance, coping mechanisms, all of those sort of behavioral responses are often an incredibly inventive adaptation in a loss context. And so this ties also into conversations about trauma, where in the context of loss, we might develop a certain coping mechanism, let's say anger. Um, and that response often serves us so well in the context of loss, like that anger might be helping me or might be helping a student in a loss setting stand up for, for someone in a situation where they need that, that kind of support and that anger is helping us in, in that way and serving us well. And then in a classroom setting, when someone is taken out of the loss context for which it is serving them, 
sometimes that same behavioral change can be viewed through a deficit-based lens if we're not thinking about it as an adaptation or not thinking about the story from which it is coming. And so I think that this all, not to stray too far away from language, but to me all kind of connects back to this idea of the lens through which we're viewing lost experiences, stories of those lost experiences, and also the way that they're manifesting in the moment in young people and colleagues in ourselves and being aware of that both in ourselves and in others. But Marley, is there anything that you would like to kind of add on that conversation? Yeah, no, I think that's important. I think um, helping people and some of this language, I think it gets confusing when you're doing this work because you know, you're in the moment. And so to keep track of some of the terms, it's like, oh, it feels overwhelming. But I think really it all just boils down to empathy versus sympathy, right? Those are two huge pieces to understand. And also, I love what you said about how sometimes the behaviors that we see kind of emerge from a student who's dealing with loss. We know that they can also be temporary, right? Like even if, if it's something that's viewed negative, we have to be careful not to attach those expressions of sadness with the student or with the person. And then on the other side of that, I think it might be worthwhile to talk just a minute. We've talked about it before, but like for people who haven't been through loss, especially at a young age, acknowledging that once you get on the other side of it, there are pieces of it that are not what's the word we want to use that aren't that aren't a deficit right yeah that aren't you know it, i mean it is a tragedy but i think those of us who have experienced it also come out of it more resilient and we value people and memories in a really beautiful and different way and so there are some positives if that's the right term that i would say we have to make sure that we're acknowledging too and that helps us avoid slipping into that sympathy space, I think. And that's making me think also about educator saviorism and the mindset that a caring adult, that could be a teacher, a coach, a counselor, any caring adult in, in a young person's life, it can sometimes slip into the mindset that I, if we're, if we're viewing a student's story through the lens of tragedy, feeling the, the onus or the responsibility to be the one person that saves that student from their story. And that's coming from a place of caring, but is an approach that is ultimately detrimental both to the caring adult and to the student, that students who are experiencing loss don't need to be saved, right? And students who are experiencing loss bring to the table incredible strength and learning and the ability to tell you as the adult how best to support them, perhaps not through verbal articulation, but if you pay attention to what that student is telling you explicitly and implicitly, they will tell you how best to support them. And then on the flip side of that, talking about how saviorism is also problematic for the teacher, in the book I engage secondary traumatic stress or vicarious trauma this idea that being the person to bear witness routinely to stories of loss, grief, and trauma can take an emotional toll, especially if we, as caring adults, also have a history of loss, grief, trauma in our own lives. And one of the ways to stave off or prevent the development of that intense response is thinking about boundaries, but thinking about that you are not that one person, that you are often 
a trusted adult in a, in a positive relationship between a young person and a caring adult. Like you are, you're a positive person and influence in that um, young person's life, but your role is ultimately to be a facilitator and we can make connections between students and other students, students and activities that might support their well-being, students and colleagues and counselors and community resources that we're kind of, I have this image in the book, a metaphor of a, a constellation that we're one piece or one star in the constellation, not to get too corny, but thinking about where it's a web, we're, we're working with students collaboratively on the same level to co-author this, this kind of web with and for them of resources. And so it's not that I am the caring adult and it's my job to go in and save, you know, every student from experiences of, of loss. And ultimately that disempowers and, and discredits, I think, students who bring to the table, as we have both said, incredible insight into their own learning from loss and experiences with loss and their comfort levels surrounding what they do and do not want the caring adults in their lives to know and to do. That's important too, is to always kind of defer to the student to articulate on their own terms what they what they feel comfortable expressing and sharing. Um, Marley, this is also making me think about, which we touched on briefly, the different kinds of losses. So moving beyond this idea of loss of a death of a person, could you maybe talk a little bit more about that? Before we move on to that, can we can I say something really quickly before I forget it? Um, when you were talking about this idea of saviorism, I think that's super important to also think about from a DEI perspective, because we know that that is something that happens. And then there has to be an awareness that we start to build, I think, in classrooms about that just across the board, because it doesn't serve our students well. And then the other thing that I think is worth mentioning is you said something that's really important, like, Typically, we're not on an island when it comes to dealing with students who have experienced grief and loss, right? You have a building with counselors or you have a family who can help bear that with you. But I, I think, okay, well, what if you are? What if you happen to be in a, in a school or in a situation where maybe there's not family involvement, maybe your school is down a counselor? I think the same sentiments that you mention in the book can still apply. And I think that there are still ways to self-care and making sure that you're not dealing with secondary trauma and still helping to serve your students. You might just have to be a little more creative, but I definitely think that those things exist. You might just have to look harder. Totally. And that makes me think also about this question, which I pose in the book, and that's totally valid, and that came up in all of my interviews, what is the teacher's role? And is grief work really something that teachers should be dealing with? You know, should this be left to school counselors? Is this an issue that really is in the realm of school psychology? And Marley, you and I have talked about this as well. And you have really compelling examples and stories that you might be willing to share from your own classroom practice. But what I kind of say to begin with is that grief work is both the teachers and if they're if you have access to a counselor, then the counselor's job, those roles will look different, but they're both equally important. In saying that, I don't ever want to imply that teachers are or should be trained mental health professionals or interventionists. That's not the implication. But instead, that 
grief work is the practices in the book, the actionable kind of classroom practices ultimately benefit all students and teachers, whether or not they're experiencing a loss in that specific moment. And so this is really thinking holistically about well-being, about um, the three pillars of trauma-informed care. That's a framework by Howard Bath that poses safety, connection, and emotional regulation as three important tenets of building a culture that's supportive of folks who are experiencing grief, loss, and trauma. We can take that a step further to think about you know, safety, that means emotional safety, physical safety, cultural safety, identity-based safety, emotional regulation, infusing into the curricula opportunities that afford students choice, that empower agency, that support reflection, and, and the kinds of environment-based experiences, instead of thinking just about one-on-one students caring adult support, but the environment-based support that ultimately helps all of us learn better. And I think that, you know, grief impacts every part of the brain, almost every part of the brain, if we think about the neurological experience of grief. And so that ultimately impacts learning in one way or another. And so, it, you know, loss and, and learning are not separated. They influence one another and our environments can influence our processing and our ability to, to feel safe and supported. When you bring up, is it a teacher's job? Does it belong in the classroom? I think that that's something that probably every teacher grapples with at some point. It's interesting if you think even about like the teacher training programs, they don't really prepare you for, you and I have talked about this, they don't prepare you for the realities of what you're going to have to deal with in regards to students who experience grief and trauma or elements of DEI. And so hopefully that changes in the future. But my perspective as an educator has always been, it is my job. They're with me most of the day. And so if we know that students are coming with more trauma and more grief, and you know, you have your book offers some great statistics to help really paint a picture of kind of where we're at with that. And I think, you know, given COVID and just our societal social unrest and issues that we're facing, I think that we're going to see those numbers jump even more. And so approaching, I think as an educator, if we can shift our mindset to, yes, we're not counselors. I agree with that and love that you differentiate between the two. But I think grief and trauma work really just begins with listening. And we've talked about this, the importance of creating a safe space so that students can you don't have, the teacher doesn't necessarily need to help them process, but giving them the space to process for themselves and to come to those moments where they can self-reflect and work through some of that is incredibly important. I do think it is a part of the fabric of the classroom and what we do. You know, it's interesting. I taught at a suburban school with tons of resources and we had a student pass away in a car accident and Um, an upperclassman. And so um, my sophomores were devastated, many of whom were friends with this young man. And one of um, my girls had went to the counseling office to get help. And the counselor was like, I don't know how to help you. I just do schedules, like go find a teacher or go find bunch. And so she comes into my room sobbing as I'm eating lunch. And I was like, wow, right. It was a wake up call for me because sometimes i I don't know that 
any adult knows exactly how to respond, but we also have to be cognizant that it might be, it might be that a student gets that response from one place. And so then really you are this great safe spot to land. And so I just gave her a space to sit and cry and didn't do anything phenomenal other than I was just a soft place to land. And so I like to think of it like that. Yeah, bearing witness, right? Like creating that that space for, and that's, I think, a really good example of the, the kind of one-on-one, more intensive student teacher or student and caring adult support that can happen and that manifests sometimes organically in the learning environment. And in the interviews for the book, teachers talked about that a lot of like, I, you know, I was on a trip in nature with students and there were no other adults around. And we engaged in this activity that activated a student's grief and reminded them of their lost experience. And I was the only adult around to help them process that while also taking care of the well-being of everybody else that was in the space. And for this one particular teacher that I'm thinking of, she also said like storytelling was a really important part of what got her and her students through that moment, Um, which I think resonates with what you've been saying, Marley, about holding that space and also going back to the importance of language. And I've certainly in teaching writing have encountered it, especially through personal narrative assignments that are not geared towards loss in any way, but that ultimately invite students to, to write personal stories that then intersect with themes of loss and grief. And so determining in, in written response to that student, how do you best validate what they're sharing? You know, also thinking about the writing and the story at the same time and with the same kind of value, placing value on, on both of those things and holding that space in a written way, right? Because it's not always verbal articulation, like a lot of students, and you and I have talked about this because we both have personal experience being um, bereaved students. Like we don't, students don't always feel comfortable sharing the details of their story, but it might come out in other ways. It might come out through writing. It might be, and outlets, outlets might you know, take other forms as well. It might be a sports team or dancing or theater that this student finds to be a helpful coping mechanism. And it's not always direct considerations of grief. Yes, I think that's so important that you mentioned that, that it it is not always through direct conversation. And, you know, you and I have, I mean, we used it at, at Smith together when we taught the idea of bringing in stories, right? It might it might be writing, it might be hearing a story that allows the student, and you talk about that in the book, you know, you're the poem that really hit home for you and your own story. Um, so I love that you mentioned, yeah, it can come in all these different ways. And so that really, I think, sheds light on two things, right? The importance of being a mentor and, and being open as an educator to being a mentor, because I think really good educators who do grief work are willing to be a mentor. And, and you and I could both speak to the power of, of having mentors in our life. And I think the other piece of that is, you know, no matter what you teach, no matter what subject you teach, finding ways to infuse writing and stories and art and creativity throughout curriculums across classrooms, I think is incredibly important because again, it serves as a mode for people to find their way to share and process um, all of this. So yeah, I love that you mentioned that. And I also think in talking about creating these kinds of safe spaces, 
two things come to mind. One is that I want to acknowledge, and I might have, might have said this already, that teachers don't necessarily need to know which students in their room are impacted by grief and trauma. There's a trauma-informed education scholar, Alex Chevron Vanette, who says, don't be a trauma detective. Like we, and this ties back into the savior idea of like, we don't necessarily need to know which students are impacted. We don't necessarily need to know the details of their story if they're not ready to share that on their terms. I think, of course, what you're saying about storytelling and identity and safe spaces, it's important to create opportunities where students do feel comfortable sharing pieces of their lived experience on their terms. But that's one thing that I think is always important going back to the environment instead of just thinking about one-on-one -on -one support, but thinking about both environment-based support and one-on-one -on -one support, what happens when we, when we mess up, right? And there's a chapter in the book that talks about um, repair and repair and caring relationships. Like what advice would you have for teachers who are, they care about this work, they have students in their classroom who are impacted by grief, loss, and trauma. Maybe they do or say something that they come to realize was not the best approach. Do you have any advice for teachers on how to kind of continue building those caring relationships even after a, a situation that maybe we realized we want to revise? That's a good question. I mean, most of my teaching has been, I would say, populations that have been slotted as like high risk, high, you know, SES, all of that. Um, so I've, I've had a lot of traumatic and really um, interesting students and experiences. And I would say the only, the only way you can mess up is by not trying and by not being willing to learn. I think you've said it a few times now, like students will guide you. And so being willing to follow their lead, which sometimes as teachers is hard to kind of really step back and make sure that it's student-centered. Um, and, and they will, they will tell you what they need. And I think if you do the work to build those authentic, and that's the key word, relationships with them, they know it. And so if you make a mistake, I think there is, you know, then you, then I think as educators, we say, hey, I made a mistake. I, I'm not sure that I said this the right way or handled this the right way, but I'm here to help you and I'm here to learn. I think that goes a long way with content, with grief work, with, all, you know, I think it's okay for adults to say, I don't know, or let me get better at this. Um, and so practicing, I think that part of our own growth in, in the profession is, I think, really critical to making sure that if we do mess up, and you are going to mess up because the situations are usually not when you expect them. You know, I had a student in the middle of one of my classes say that she had a suicide plan and you're like, whoa, like it's 8.15 in the morning, you know? So those things come out of left field and you don't always land on your feet. And I think that's okay. It's okay to not know the perfect exact thing. But I think inaction is the only thing that I would say is dangerous, right? This idea of like, I, I know that I have students who have grief, but I really don't want to deal with it. So I'm just going to put blinders on and not acknowledge it. I think that can be super dangerous. Definitely. It makes me think about how avoidance, this is something that I talk about in the book, avoidance is a natural coping mechanism and response to grief, loss, and trauma that we all 
are often socialized to have or have because of the brain-based changes that we experience in response to grief loss trauma. Like this is a, an experience or story that feels scary and that often causes us to acknowledge something that's unresolved in ourselves, right? And so avoidance is making me think about what you've just said about it's most dangerous to not act or to not engage in this kind of work when there's an opportunity to do so. I think holding grace for ourselves and, and realizing that so much of grief work and grief responsive teaching starts with self-reflection and kind of understanding our own loss experiences, whether or not we were supported during them, how they continue to inform us today and our responses to grief, loss, trauma, and other people today. A lot of it starts with the self, but then, you know, how do we take that self-reflection and translate it into action? I love what you're saying about modeling learning. And the title is learning from loss, right? Like the point is how do we take these opportunities to process our experiences on an individual and a communal level? Um, because so much of grief in Western society is individualistic and yet so much healing we know from the research happens in community and in connection with others. How do we ultimately model learning and model not knowing and model revision. And I really appreciate that. There's also some research in the field of trauma-informed ed that suggests that a lot of students might not have a, a model for that kind of interactive repair. So having an adult come back to a conversation or an action and say, you know what, I'm really not proud of the way that I did that or said that and here's what was going on in that moment and here's what I wish I had done or what I wish I had said. That can hold all the difference in both how a student views themselves and their own story and then also how they interact with others and, and learn how to do that kind of interactive repair with others. Are you, what do you think about, I think it might be good to just kind of round out and end the conversation with like, we've been on both sides of this. So as educators and as students in a classroom, what are some tangible, because what you just said made me think about that. What are some tangible ways if I'm listening to this as an educator or just as you pointed out, like the community piece, I'm in the community. I want some tangible ways that I can facilitate this work. Is there anything that you would say could happen? One of the things I think about is even just like classroom setup right? Like having desk in a circle, I think facilitates um, a discussion that feels more open and more accessible. We mentioned like writing, um, bringing in different ways, whether that be art or stories. And when you mentioned modeling, I thought about like if you're in a circle and you do Socratic discussions, what I've seen is oftentimes students will not just the teachers model, but students will then model to other students who have experienced grief or loss, um, or even the ones who have not, really beautiful ways of how to process and be resilient and all of those great things. Are there anything, anything you would add to that list if someone's like, I want a tangible takeaway? Definitely. Yeah. So there's two kind of parts of that question that come to mind. The first is more implicit and the other is more explicit. So implicitly, I think about the importance of routine and that's something that both young people and educators and grief counselors who I interviewed talked about how in the face of loss, when your world and your routine is disrupted and feeling chaotic, we feel a lack of control. 
often subliminally we we seek out opportunities to restore that sense of routine of predictability of control and so thinking mindfully in the classroom about how do you set up consistency and predictability with students that ultimately creates a sense of safety that could be if a student if you know that a student has a trusting relationship with you um, that could be setting up a weekly meeting with that student to take some time to debrief check in talk about how schoolwork is going you know does that student feel that they need accommodations does that student feel like they're being supported in, in the learning environment it could also be in the classroom starting and stopping your class the same way each day maybe we think about integrating mindfulness you know we begin together with a mindfulness activity we have free writing as an exit as an exit ticket um, related to whatever content matter we're teaching um, so that's more implicit and the same thing goes for choice that's one way to empower a sense of control in students is offering choice whether that's something small like choice-based reading assignments or inquiry-based learning where a student is kind of having a say in what they're studying and how they're studying it these all sound like they might be disconnected to grief, but ultimately support a sense of autonomy and control and consistency that that seek to kind of buoy um, well-being in the face of loss. And then more explicitly, going back to what you were saying, Marley, about processing and, and inviting lived experience into the classroom. So we do not necessarily want to put students on the spot to think or talk about their loss experiences. Um, that can risk harm and risk perpetuating trauma. And I talk in the book about four different types of vulnerability. There's scaffolded vulnerability, which is what I'll offer here as kind of a goal in, in writing and talking and thinking. And I love what you said about students kind of modeling that expression of identity for each other. But two, the other forms of vulnerability are forced vulnerability, ignored vulnerability, right? These ideas that a student might make themselves vulnerable and are not met in that space or are put on the spot to be vulnerable. And that's not ideal either, that can risk, risk harm. So I always say creating spaces for expressions of identity, but on students' terms, right? And likewise for colleagues, right? Adults I think are, are a part of this conversation too, but having an open invitation to expressing yourself and your learnings and your lived experience and the expertise that you bring into the classroom um, in a way that feels comfortable for you in that given moment. I love that. I think those are all super great ways that um, people could put your book and the content into action in classrooms. And I, um, I just so much appreciate that you have written about this topic. I think it's incredibly important. I think it um, is such a beautiful intersection of DEI and trauma-informed care and definitely worthwhile. And I just appreciate having this time with you in this conversation. Well, and I appreciate you and your role in my life as a mentor. I've learned so much about education and teaching, both observing you in the classroom and teaching with you in both in-person and digital classrooms now nowadays. Um, and so I really appreciate the perspective that you bring to this, both as someone who has lived through it as I have, and also someone who has thought intentionally about it from an educator perspective and not only the student perspective. I think it's really unique to have that kind of full circle and be able to think and talk about it together. So thank Absolutely. you. Before we sign off, are there any spaces that listeners can get 
uh, their hands on resources or anywhere you would direct them for further learning? Absolutely. So, of course, the Heinemann website, um, you can access the Learning from Loss book there, as well as some accompanying resources. And Marley and I are in the process of co-authoring an anti-bias, anti-racist, grief-responsive teaching study guide to accompany the book. There are also several blog posts that are currently up that accompany the book. But I'll also mention the Grief Responsive Teaching website, www.griefresponsiveteaching.com, and then the Grief Responsive Teaching Instagram. That's just the handle, Grief Responsive Teaching. I post free resources on a consistent basis in both of those spaces, so on the website and on the Instagram. Um, so that's a space to learn more and, and engage in conversations even beyond the book, because as I discovered while writing, this could be an endless series of books. There is no end to this conversation. I'm always learning. We're all always learning as we engage in this work. So I feel lucky to have that space to continue the conversation. My thanks to Brittany and Marley for their time today. Learning from Loss is available now from Heinemann.com. Learn more about grief response teaching at BrittanyRCollins.com and GriefResponsiveTeaching.com. You can follow Brittany on Twitter at BRCollins27 and Marley at M. Stempelman. To read a transcript of this episode, go to blog.heinemann.com. The Heinemann Podcast is a production of Heinemann Publishing. It is produced and edited by Steph George. Sound mixing by Steph George. Our creative producer is Lauren Audette. And our executive producer is me, Brett Whitmarsh. To learn more about the Heinemann Podcast, visit blog.heinemann.com. Thanks for listening.